Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Friday's weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. No, thank you. It's good to be with you again. Appreciate that. Nice to have you on. The um, you know, someone asked me this question this week, and I thought it was legitimate to uh, to bring up to you since you know him so long. Um, the, uh, many commentators are um, are um, speaking about how different the president of the United States is than he was ten, twenty, thirty, forty years ago while serving in the halls of Congress. So you know him pretty well. Uh, does it surprise you that he says and now holds as policy some of the things that he does? Um, look, people change over time. There's, I've known him since, I think, 1978 wow. and um, met him with him many, many times as vice president, as uh, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, as if even from his freshman term as a senator. Uh, we worked together on some stuff. We argued about others. But, um, uh, I t- you know, there's been very little personal exposure to the president to be able to judge. And, you know, we will see. People have to draw their own conclusions. Yeah, that's an understatement. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> it seems, And I'm hoping people draw the right conclusions, but we'll see. Who knows what's right at this point anymore. Um, it seems an Omicron subvariant has been found in Israel. And I also read a report this week. Uh, that there's a conjecture or an analysis by one of the uh, research institutes at Hebrew University that the number of cases in Israel could rise to anywhere from 800,000 to 2 million. Not that I need you uh, to <laughs> to, um, uh, to to um, uh, bring us down even more, those of us who have had it over the last two years with uh, COVID and Omicron, but um, uh, how serious is uh, the news out of Israel? I mean, could this actually uh, get to the numbers they're talking about, and could this actually lead to even more variants at this point? Well, there are new variants that are being uncovered all the time in, in uh, Cyprus. There's one that's a, a merger of COVID-19 and uh, Omicron. There are others that, uh, I mean, Delta and and, uh, uh, and Omicron. So there will be variations, no doubt. I think the number you cited is an underestimate of what they anticipate um, the new numbers, the multiple numbers of Israel uh, over the next a couple of months, they say two to four million people. Wow. But some think it's a good thing because then you get moved towards what they call herd immunity. Others say that the uh, question whether that's, uh, that's valid, uh, the fact that uh, most are not very serious or don't appear to be that serious is, uh, is a positive. But there's still a lot of people being hospitalized. There's still a lot of the ICU units are, are being stretched. Um, elective uh, surgeries, which for some people are, won't consider elective, are being put off. So there is a heavy toll that it takes. And, uh, you know, people, even if they're not uh, deathly sick as much as with uh, Delta, they're still sick. And people are missing work, and people are impacted in, in many ways. And thank God Israel's economy seems to have been you know, is very strong. There was over $2 billion in investments in December in high-tech, and the, the numbers continue to astound. Uh, but uh, ultimately, it, it takes a toll on every economy. 
Yeah, I know you're not the one to complain to, but uh, you're the one on the air right now, <laughs> and so many people are just, you know, have been are fed up with this whole thing already, and the whole situation. And I know that you know there's some benefits, a lot less traffic out there as people are taking off from work and staying home. But aside from that, I mean, there are not many benefits to this whole situation, and and it's the it's the prospect of the future variants, some of which you just you know mentioned. It's the prospect of those, you know, having the same type of effect or, again, causing lockdowns or, you know, even leading to, uh, you know, to a, to another uh, a round of uh, transmission. And, uh, you know, when you say, let's get to the point of herd immunity or there are those who think it's a good thing that we might get there, I hope that that herd immunity is going to protect all of us from whatever future variants come, because otherwise, what's it worth if not? Yeah, absolutely. And... uh you know, the um, positivity rate in Israel is growing quickly. It is here, too. And um, I, I, I'm not an advocate about the herd, herd immunity because I don't know enough. And I, it seems to me that uh, you can get a doctor or some expert to say anything of the things that you already believe. Um, but the, um, the, there were six fatalities yesterday in 24 hours in Israel. And this is... Um, you know, the Ministry of Health doesn't report it, but others, uh, the radio reports those things. So people shouldn't think there are no lethal consequences yet, even if it's uh, the numbers are smaller. And, of course, everybody's had compromises in uh, situations. But I, I think that we don't understand yet the long-term consequences, how it has changed the workplace, how it has changed people's habits about, you know, the fact that we can't get nurses and that the institutions are, are begging for staff and paying outrageous amounts um, to uh, in certain areas just to get workers to, to do the day-to-day stuff that people used to gladly do. Um, the office, people not going into the office, I think these will be long-term changes, I think. Yeah, I guess so. We're going to have to learn to live with all of them. Uh, these friendly fire episodes in Israel are the worst, right? I mean, with Horrific. The, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And uh, this one, of course, misidentification and just a, a terrible mistake. And, uh, and and two of the finest, again, always talk about the finest, uh, taken from us and buried yesterday in uh, military cemeteries in Israel. When they talk about the, um, the, the trust in the IDF and its leadership, are they talking about episodes like this, or is there more to that whole story that keeps coming out? Well, I don't know yet on this. There's still an investigation about what happened. Uh, it's not the first or the last, unfortunately, but it's it's so tragic. And, you know, it's one thing if somebody's uh, killed in a battle and, you know, it's ho- horrific and painful. But when it's uh, something unnecessary like this, then it raises a lot of questions that I think will, will be answered. This is not something that will just go by. The, news, the media in Israel is playing it up uh, as the rightfully. Uh, and if you read the stories of these two guys and you look at them, it just breaks your heart. Yeah, 100%. But when I see a headline, even if it's an opinion piece, that says the IDF is losing the public's trust, is it because of episodes like this, or is there more going on that we on this side of the world don't know about? Well, there are always accusations when an incident like this occurred and that there were charges of people before about some things that are going on in the Army. But that is, uh, it is natural in these circumstances. The Netanyahu plea deal, is this going to be a reality where he's going to agree to stay out of politics in exchange for some admission of guilt in this whole situation? 
Look, I think he wants to make a deal while Mandelblit is still the attorney general, which is not for much longer. And um, if he can get a deal that will not see any um, prison terms, something, and he would have a limited time when he would be out. It would be like seven years or something that he would have to stay out of politics and uh, out of running for office. Uh, he, he won't stay out of politics, I don't think. And you can understand, you know, when you're facing serious charges, that uh, if he can get a deal, that will enable him to um, perhaps avoid prison and avoid uh, some of the other consequences that it is possible. So I think that the reports are accurate in, in terms of the, the discussions that are ongoing. I don't know what the conclusion will be. And uh, let's see, how old is he today? He's a... Uh, 70. 72, so I mean seven years out of politics. You have to assume that that would basically mean, you know, he's not re-entering politics. And is he allowed... And I mean, I know the plea deal is obviously not finalized yet. We're just conjecturing. Uh, but when you say he can't run, that means as part of a party list as well? Like he can never be a member of Knesset or not necessarily as long as he's not at the top of a ticket? I don't know. They have not revealed the, the, the details, but I would assume that it means no... No elective office, but staying out of politics does not mean that he can't, you know, be involved in Likud uh, and internal workings. And he's still the most popular leader there by far. And you saw that even in the in the general um, polling that's done, Likud still ends up being the largest party. I wonder if he would have handled things differently over the last couple of months in Israel if he was still in power. Uh, I don't know if the prime minister really can be blamed at this point already, because I don't think anybody knows what to do with this whole variant thing. And now the red countries are no longer red, and now things have opened up. And I'm assuming you know of people who've already traveled to Israel. I don't know how difficult it is. Is is there? A de- there must be still a degree of difficulty, right, in terms of applications and PCR tests, etc. I would guess. No, it's simplified a lot. But the, uh, the the problem is that there isn't a surge that some had expected of all the pent-up demand. There is, a, I believe, a lot of pent-up demand. I do believe we will see it February, March, April, that people will start going again. I hope for Pesach people will go. Uh, people are still reluctant to travel, and that has to do with the United States, has to do with every other country, people going into planes, even though airplane air filtration is usually better than general. Um, and, you know, People uh, are waiting to see. They, a lot of people would have gone over Hanukkah and had a, uh, and, uh, the time off in December. So I think now people will start rebooking, and it's usually not a week or two. You need a lack time till you actually see it manifest in the number of people going. A lot of people are, you know, next week's yeshiva break for a lot of, and there'll be yeshiva breaks, you know, from now till the end of January for different right. schools. And a lot of people are choosing interesting destinations, but they're finding out that they test positive, the regulations in these countries and these areas of the world could be really strict. I mean, people could really end up being, I don't want to scare anyone, but people could really end up being isolated for a period of time if they end up, you know, getting this thing. And we know the transmission level is very, very high. So as you just pointed out, it's not just Israel. People are reluctant to get on a plane to go anywhere at this point. And, you know, if you get stuck in Israel and have to be isolated or hospitalized, it's one thing. If you're in some, you know, um, more remote place yeah. and you think of having to be stuck there for five, six days if you're quarantined, and then if you're with a group, the whole group gets quarantined, the consideration that all of us take when we plan trips and, and try to anticipate all of the options. Unbelievable. Um, what do you know about this rocket attack on the U.S. Embassy in Iraq? It is part of a continuing series of incidents involving uh, Iranian-backed militia groups. 
They are trying to drive the United States' remaining 2,500 troops out of Baghdad. There is still the uh, commemoration of the second anniversary of the killing of Soleimani, you know, who was uh, almost a, son, a second son to, uh, or a special son to the Supreme Leader. He was one of those who helped build the IRGC. He, he also uh, structured their involvement in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. And um, very interesting things that have uh, taken place, as, as you know, although they are um, holding commemorations and they idealize the guy and they blame the United States. And, you know, they even did a video contest, an uh, artistic contest, and the video showing the killing by a UAV, uh, a drone, um, a weaponized drone in Mar-a-Lago, killing President Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo, both of whom have additional security now. Whoa. But the Supreme Leader himself said it publicly and threatened the president and anybody else who had a hand in, in this and that they have their warrants were issued for 127 people, including 51 Americans. They are, um, you know, they built a statue in Iraq, uh, not in Baghdad, outside, and uh, of Soleimani, and the very same evening, it was burnt down. And the, you know, the resentment in a lot of the places about these manifestations in Lebanon that was a reaction to the to the commemorations where the Shiite population obviously participated but the Sunnis and the others didn't <coughs> and it's true in, in a lot of places they they are using him his, his death to, to rally the people at a time when they are the Iranians are uh, people are more and more um, let's say distanced from uh, from the government and angry at the government and there are demonstrations all the time on every pretext about salaries, about wages, about uh, inoculations, about everything. The drought continues to, to devastate the economy. The currency is is uh, lower and lower. Uh, but at the same time, they are continuing their efforts. We saw now the foreign minister of, of Iran is in China now and negotiating this 25-year deal. Um, they uh, are the Iranian Navy now is being boasted that they have 23 small submarines, which I talked about in this show many years ago when they started building them. They have basically, the Iranian Navy is very outdated, so is the IRGC Navy, but there is really is hit-and-run operations. Uh, but they're, they're touting all of these things um, to, um, you know, to, to impress the West, then negotiations in Vienna are, are, do not seem to be moving anywhere, and I hope that that doesn't mean that we will continue to make concessions, but rather that um, we will um, be harder and take a tougher stand, because we know what we're dealing with, and Iran knows how to manipulate their bazaaris for 3,000 years. They've negotiated. They know exactly uh, what they're doing and how to do it. Their activities in South America are skyrocketing, and I, I've just said an aside, and because I want to make sure that it gets out. People should look at what's happening in South America. It gets no attention. Right. But almost every country is falling to extremist, anti-Israel, even anti-Semitic parties. Chile just elected an, an anti-Semite, an alleged anti-Semite. Uh, Argentina is going down. Bolsonaro is likely not to get reelected. the president of, of Brazil has been very pro-Israel. President of Colombia, very pro-Israel, likely be replaced by somebody hostile. Peru already did. Paraguay did. One country after another. And Iran is in there, 
manipulating this and working with uh, Maduro and with uh, Cuba and others. Iran is inside Hezbollah. It's expanding its activities, doing training and doing um, using this as a base. Uh, and, and it's, I mean, an hour and a half off our coast. And nobody is paying attention to it. Nobody is talking about this major shift. There was a while when all these pro-American, even pro-Israel governments were being elected, and now we see the complete reversal uh, of that. And the explanation for this shift? I mean, I know things are cyclical in politics, but the explanation of all this well, happening... there is some cyclical, and because the economic conditions are terrible, and because nobody handled COVID well, so you always strike out at who's, whoever's in power right. and, and look for something better, even though that doesn't mean necessarily that... Uh, that they are. By the way, and, and, and when you talk about Iran's expansions in, in um, Syria, they're building huge facilities in Iran, huge facilities for their nuclear program in Syria for a place where we believe they're going to hide drones. It's in, in an Air Force base, a former Air Force base that was abandoned, more or less, and they took it over. Um, that's why Israel, uh, somebody hit the uh, weapons that were just delivered by Iran in Latakia port, because once it leaves the port, it's harder to track and harder to, to deal with. And also you have Russian presence there. So they did it from the Mediterranean Sea. But it was a very effective strike that uh, eliminated one of the shipments. But we know that Israel took out thousands last year. And they continue to provide and to supply and to um, to manipulate. That's why Hezbollah hosted this, the opposition parties from Saudi Arabia in Beirut this week. You read about it? No. But is it significant? Of course, because you see the effort, their efforts to continue to uh, expand. We saw the explosion at the Hezbollah facilities. We see the people in these countries turning more and more against. If I, just one more thing sure. I just want to tell you about, which I know you will appreciate. There was a study done, a, 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 a sort of a poll that was done by this guy who has 5.9 million followers in um on on the internet, and they they asked this this guy's name was um, Faisal Al Qasim, and he's a Syrian-born TV host. And these followers on Twitter were asked, which is better, Israel's reputation or Iran's reputation in the Middle East? The poll showed 74.8 percent said Israel a better reputation, and it's not Israelis who are right. Who are responding? And the next day, Al Qasim of the Al Jazeera network did a similar survey, asking, "Do you support the Israeli bombing of Iran and its militias in Syria?" Seventy-seven point eight percent said they supported it. Wow! Right. What does that? But, t- what does yeah, that you'll tell never us? read that in the press. What does that tell us about the men on the street in Iran or uh, or the entire well, Middle East? Yes, you you when when. Uh, Israel broadcast to to uh, Iran. It was the most popular foreign broadcast. People, in, the Iranian people, don't necessarily hate Israel. There are many who do. There are many who are Shiite extremists who follow the leader and who who engage in these activities. But these two polls, and they're not organized by anybody. It's just responses of people. Uh, I think are very telling. America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NalcolmSingle.com and the NalcolmSingle Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Reminder, our two Bishvat special Monday morning between 6 and 9, right here at JM in the AM. What do you make of the uh, New York Times' assumption that the United States and Iran are closer to a deal? 
Yeah, the question is what kind of a deal? You can have a deal which uh, simply says that we're making concessions to them. They are demanding more and more concessions than the release, especially of the money from South Korea. And we've seen that some money, it appears, was already released, uh, which goes back to the pallets of cash uh, image that, that uh, we all remember and the price that we paid for for that, uh, being able to support their terrorist activities. It doesn't go to the people. It goes right away to the... To the, to the Supreme Leader and the IRGC who control 40% probably of the economy today and who will benefit from it. Um, so the, um, the, 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 so far in Vienna, we know that there have only been baby steps. There have been no concessions. The Iranians are on circles around, uh, around the negotiators. Uh, the United States is only a secondary negotiator, but it's the same people who did the JCPOA who are negotiating in in uh, Vienna, right. so that a deal as some sort of a deal, uh, less for less deal, is is likely what they're talking about. Uh, it's funny though because it seems from the tone of these articles that that the assumption is they're closer to a deal than they were a week or two ago, and I, I don't know if that's reality. Um, unless again, as you said, they're giving in on certain concessions that are just bringing them closer. But uh, it, I don't know. It doesn't seem like we can get a handle on this about what this final deal is going to look like eventually. We don't know yet what the final deal will do. We fear what the deal could be, because anything that gives them resources and allows them to break the sanctions and uh, to, to go back to business as usual, believe me, there won't be a second deal. You know, they say that this is the only the first stage, and then we're going to go to the second stage, we're going to put something down. No. Iranians will get what they want because right now they're getting more money. China is buying a lot of oil from them. They are um, beneficiaries of this, and the, and the money conditions are better for the government than they were. They're not good. They're far from good, but it is better than, than it was. And you see how China is taking advantage of all the things we talked about. Now the foreign ministers of most of the Gulf countries um, uh, are in China right now, uh, and the foreign minister of Iran is there. Um, China is expanding its footprint and doing a lot with uh, with Iran and doing business, etc. So the the um, if, if the deal is really seen as an interim stage, it's going to be a final stage. If they really give any kind of money or sanctions relief without hard concession, other than than just saying that Iran will say, well, we're not going to enrich to 90% anymore, and maybe we'll export what we have up to 90%. It's not the relevant point, because once you have the know-how, which they have now, <clears throat> they can snap back. In the meantime, you saw they launched a ballistic missile last week trying to put a satellite into orbit. They don't care about the satellite. They're doing is testing their ballistic missile capacity. They're not allowed to do it under U.N. sanctions for military and other purposes. So they say, no, we're not doing it for, for that. We're, this is scientific. We had three things on there that there was, it didn't make it into orbit. But they launched, and they are all the time gaining knowledge and advancing their capacity. And so, you know, we get easily misled. We don't understand what the the, the significance of of. Iran's planning, careful planning, advancing their their cause all the time, even though there is increasing resistance to them. We saw that the Syrian president is reaching out to the Gulf, maybe because they want to try and get, line up the Sunnis to help him um, get rid of Iran, or at least minimize Iran's 
presence in uh, in Syria, and to he never he didn't trust them before, and he certainly doesn't trust them now. To to um, to to build get alternative relationships. So it's a very complex picture. And, is that the reason? Is that the reason we keep reading about normalization possibilities between Israel and Libya, or that's uh, outside of the realm of what the Iranians are doing? That's separate, but it it does reflect that the that people uh, countries believe that you, the path to the United States path to normal positions is uh, rooted in having a relationship with Israel. Also, they know that they can benefit a lot. It, it, Libya needs the water reclamation, Israel's energy projects, all of that are relevant to them. I wouldn't look tomorrow for Libya and Israel to have relationships, but the head of the Shin Bet met with the prime minister of uh, of Libya. It's a very uh, unstable situation, and you have 10 countries fighting in there. The Russians are there, the Iranians are there, the Turks are there, the Egyptians, everybody's involved there. It's not a very stable situation, but I think that uh, they want to improve their relationship with the United States, with others, and uh, Israel is a key to that. So it's not happening in the immediate future, but would you say it's a more stable situation in Libya than it was five, ten years ago? Like, uh, is it much, much different than then, or very similar to then? No, I think it's it, under Gaddafi. It was stable, but it was a stable dictatorship. Right. Now it's unstable, and but more democratic. Uh, <laughs> no, not democratic, but more. What would you say? It's less stable, but more. Well, you have more competition. You have more parties uh, fighting, but the situation there is is very bad. The economic situation, people, the plight of the people, the um, um, cost of the, all, all this conflict, and it's not. It, it you know it, it may be a, on a lower flame, but it's not stable at all. Finally, two bishvadas on Monday. Uh, the tree planting controversy in the Negev. Now it always seems to be a problem when uh, Israel wants to, or JNF KKL wants to plant trees, uh, especially this time of year, depending on where they are. And I know the Negev is is we haven't spoken about this in a long time. Uh, the Negev is one of the present and future hotspots when it comes to, uh, I guess we'd say, Israeli sovereignty, right? Because the it, because Israel, if they're not careful with the way things are happening in the Negev, they could lose some of that area. Um, and I, I think you know what I mean by that, with the Bedouin presence and with the squatters that are that are in that area of Israel. So what what is this tree planting controversy and is how will Israel emerge from it? Well, first of all, the, you, you rightly point to the broader situation of what's happening in the Negev. Uh, Israel wants to develop the Negev, building high, uh, the high-speed railroad, wanting to connect Beersheba to Tel Aviv, and et cetera, because it is uh, room for expansion for Israel. The Israeli population is growing, um, and uh, the, they moved the cyber center to, to the Negev, other things, uh, the developments that have happened there. Uh, but in, in all this time, quietly, the Bedouin population continues to expand, they, and they take land illegally, um, state-owned land. Uh, they don't pay taxes. They don't. Uh, um, they operate by their own rules, basically. And the government. Uh, one of the ways to, to to address it is to build cities and to move them into it, which have defined boundaries or communities that have defined boundaries. And as I understand it, and to. Um, Right. Uh, at the same time, they are living in Israel, and they have to be provided with services and what they're entitled to as well. Here they have a, a the tree planting is also a way of creating boundaries. It's also essential in Negev, and they had this tree planting ceremony 
which uh, involved the KKL, and the the uh, demonstrations were very strong. So they stopped, and then they finished it. Now I know the true trees uh, were trees were uprooted. Um, I met in protesters to cut out the cut off the source of life, which trees represent, and and uh, containing the soil erosion and so many other things is really uh, terrible. And you can't just have people making their own rules, their own laws, uh, because we could lose good parts of the Negev. Right. Um, you know, they could someday just declare a separate state or something. Uh, although Bedouins serve in the army and Bedouins uh, contribute to Israel, and it's not a blanket uh, uh, situation that, that and condemnation, but it's a reality about the, the shift, the demographic, demographic and topographic shift in the in the Negev, and it, it, governments didn't address it, didn't have foresight. People, you know, spoke to me about this for many, many years already and warned about it, and warned because they wanted to avoid a, 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 a clash with them, and they could cross, Bedouin would cross across the border from Israel. It's almost impossible to stop. They know better than anybody how to do it, and they know the Negev better, uh, the deserts. So it's it's uh, this will be an ongoing situation. Uh, any other updates before I let you go, Malcolm? Ukraine or anything else you want to tell us about quickly? No, we're in touch with the Jews in the Ukraine. Um, one of the things that did happen was a, a really an affront to everyone, and that was the presence at the the um, inauguration of the president uh, of um, uh, the presence of Mohsen Rezaei, who's one of the five Iranians accused of being behind the bombing of the Amiyah, the Jewish Community Center, was present at the swearing-in of Daniel Ortega in uh, in uh, Managua, and he, this chutzpah, and the presence of this guy, who was responsible for 85 people who were killed in that uh, bomb, uh, truck bomb attack at the um, uh, Amiyah Jewish Community Center, and there's a red notice that Interpol has against him, and yet here he appears publicly in this ceremony, which tells us that the they're not they're not taking it seriously. Interpol isn't taking it seriously, and they are sending a message with it that should be a warning. Wow! Uh, I thank you as usual. We'll speak Bezrat Hashem next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Great Shabbos and be well. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. With us. Friday morning, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.